We are going to do Christmas in September, as we're in Luke chapter 2. And most of the time, uh, this text is shared during Christmas time, but this is just where we happen to be next in our text today, so this is where we're at. Uh, Let me open up in prayer while you guys open up to Luke chapter 2. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be here with us as we go through your Holy Word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to some things, uh, to see some things that aren't even said from the pulpit, but that you're speaking into our heart and into our mind. We ask, God, that uh, people feel loved here tonight, that they feel hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke didn't intend for this to be like just studied on Christmas, right? It's, it's, it's the Word of God. It's not meant for just once a year. So he, he's, he's quite a skilled writer. He's quite a skilled author. He talks about something that everyone experiences. Everyone experiences death and everyone experiences taxes, right? So death and taxes. And he gets every, everyone's attention in the world of all time. And, he, and here it is written for us. So that anyone at any time in history would understand about this subject. And so Luke 2 starts out with this taxes, this registration for for the account of taxpayers. Uh, The Roman Empire also used this to keep track of their military, the military draft. But in these provinces here that that, uh, Mary and Joseph are in, they weren't necessarily pulled for military draft from those provinces. This one was more about taxes. Now this chapter isn't really about economics here. This chapter is about seeing the real king, seeing the real king, Jesus. And so that's what this text this evening, that's what we're going to be talking about. Now, how does Luke start with us seeing the real king? Well, he starts out by introducing some really prominent people, and he actually introduces the most prominent person in history of that time, of that known period of time, and it's Octavian Caesar Augustus, the man. So verses 1 through 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now this type of census taking, it's nothing new. They have records of actually these censuses being taken in, um, in these like 14-year gaps. And so we have this kind of archaeological history with us that, that this is being done. And so we're introduced to the most prominent person in the world at that time, Octavian Caesar Augustus. And with his decree, with his word, he sets the known world in motion. Pretty powerful guy. I mean, you talk about influence, you talk about power, that this guy, if he just says something, the whole world moves at his order. Now, the entire Roman Empire, which at the death of Augustus, was over 3,340,000 square miles. We have a map of that. This 3,340,000 square miles is larger than the mainland United States. And you have to consider that there's the Mediterranean Sea in the middle and all of that. So that land mass around that Mediterranean Sea is larger than the mainland United States. And it's not doing it justice because it's not showing you all of North Africa down into Morocco. It's not showing you over to Spain, uh, unfortunately. And and then it, and it curves down. But it's the entire coast. And so this... This is quite an empire. He had quite an empire. And in 21 BC, he went to Greek Asia. And there would be these orations, these dedications that hailed him as a savior. That that said that he was the bringer of good tidings. That said that he was the son of God. And some even thought that he might be the Messiah. 
that he actually might be the Messiah who would bring about peace and happiness. Caesar Augustus, the most prominent man in the world at that time, yet Luke is just kind of using him as a backdrop. He's just kind of giving us a reference point of history here. We're told about him in verses 1 through 3, but then what does Luke do? He turns right to Joseph in verse 4. And so this is the turning point to the entire story here. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now Caesar Augustus is the man. Literally, the man. You know, like when we're working and we're saying like, yeah, we're working for the man and all that. That man is like, we don't know, right? There's not a singular person we can point to. It's just like, yeah, my money goes to the man. My taxes goes to the man. This guy is literally the man. You can point to him of the Roman Empire. My money goes to him. Right? And so this this is the guy. And there was really a guy named Quirinius. He was really governor of Syria. And so these guys that are are the movers and shakers of the times, these guys make headlines. These guys are the guys you would pull up on on Google News, and there they are. Right? These guys are the, the people that they talk about on talk radio. These guys are the guys that would be on NPR. These are the guys. And so Caesar Augustus is, is, is news worldwide. Everyone knows Caesar Augustus. Quirinius, on the other hand, probably a little bit lesser. Probably the provinces that he's in charge of, those people know him. Nevertheless, these guys are the movers and shakers of, of that time. And then you, you, you kind of you look at this and you're like, wow, this, I'm reading this. And, and, and these real people, uh, these real backgrounds, and these real stories... But what really matters is in verse 4. Luke is saying, what I'm giving you guys is is world history. I'm giving you this backdrop. I'm telling you about all these prominent people. But let me tell you about his story. And his story begins in verse 4. That there was this guy named Joseph, and he was from Galilee. That there was this gal named Mary, and he was betrothed to Joseph. And she was carrying this child. She was pregnant with a child. And so you just imagine reading this for the first time and you, and you, can, can you think about how audacious Luke is in writing like this? Right? You're, you're, you know, how, how audacious is this that you're writing about Caesar Augustus who some deem as like the God-man, the Savior, the bringer of peace and you're bringing Quirinius, the governor of Syria and, and so these, are, these guys are people of influence. These guys are people of power. But Luke is saying what really matters isn't taking place in Rome. What really matters is taking place in, some, in this little hick town called Bethlehem with this carpenter and this pregnant teenage gal. And you're thinking, what? I don't get it. Why, why, why like this? And sometimes the things that really matter happen with people we don't really know that much about. And sometimes it's not about the Caesar Augustuses of the world or the Quiriniuses of the world who the world deems as important people. The real news, what really matters is this unknown carpenter, his teenage pregnant wife who was betrothed to him, and the baby who was in her womb. And that is the true significant history. And that is where our eyes are to be focused on. So you see kind of how audacious Luke's writing is. is, is saying like, you know all these important people, the, the things that are happening out in Rome, the most important things, 
Don't look at that. Look at this. Look at this just little town. Yeah, I know. This carpenter. Yeah, I know. And, and that baby to this teenage mom. Yeah, I know. But, but don't focus on this stuff. Look at this. And, she, and so you don't put your eyes on the most powerful people at the time who have the most influence. You put them on this poor couple who has no power, who has no influence. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So here we're introduced to the real king. The story begins with Caesar Augustus, whom some called the Savior, right? Who, who at his decree, at his word, the whole world moves. The whole known world. And verse 7 ends with the Savior being born into a manger, a feeding trough. Not a throne, a feeding trough. And we have a picture of that as well. And so the real king was born and laid in a manger in a feeding trough. And so the feeding trough is the one up there, that longer one, uh, made out of stone. Most of the time in our little scenes during Christmas time, we have like a wooden manger. Um, that's just not accurate. It's not a lot of wood out there. Mostly olive trees, and olive trees don't make good wood. They don't have a ton of wood out there. So mostly for an animal, a feeding trough, it would just be made out of stone. They have a lot of stone. A lot. And so that's how it was. It was hewn out there and then feed the animals there. I think we have another one, right? This one is actually from Bethlehem, a picture that we took several years ago. And that one is in actually Bethlehem. And so Jesus was laid in something like that because that was from a couple thousand years ago. It's just, it's there. So it looks just like that. Maybe that's the actual one. Maybe not. And so, born in a feeding trough. The one in the feeding trough is the one we really need to focus on, not the one on a throne, not the one in all-powerful Rome. Right? The real king. We need, we, need to, we need to see the real king. We need to put that Caesar in his real place. And once we see who that real king is, then no other authority, no other power can really threaten us. And, and that's a constant battle for us in the Christian life, isn't it? To see who the real king of our life really is. To see who really has influence on us. To see who really has power over us. And maybe not even just people, but things. Or ideologies. To discern what or who really has power and influence over my life? And if Jesus is the real king and he's there, then these other things kind of fall into their own place. And we don't have to be ruled by them. We don't have to be overtaken by them. Because as far as the Christian life goes, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a monarchy under King Jesus. And and if that's the case, we don't have to fear those other things. We don't have to pretend that that these other things are there having power and influence over us. Not even an all-powerful Caesar Augustus. A very powerful man. Right? And, And we need to see the real king to keep him in front of us. And you take all those who are in competition to that throne down from their pedestals. And if the child in that feeding trough is the real king and we live under his monarchy, then all these other falsely put kings and idols and things like that, they have to be removed and, and we don't have to fear them anymore. Right? We don't have to fear against those pretend authorities and influences because there is no king other than Christ Jesus. 
Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 26. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. See, no one usurps the throne of King Jesus. The place of King Jesus. And we don't have to fear others or other things with, with that true King in place. With Him in place. So as Luke is writing this stuff, you see kind of the audacity of the Gospel here in his, in his account. But now we're going to also see some of the foolishness of this Gospel account. Verses 8 and 9. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. Now, when we think of shepherds, we just kind of think of like, oh, they take care of sheep, um, they, they, they guard against robbers and wolves, and, and, they, and they shear them, and, and all that kind of stuff. And we think more about kind of their duties, right? And so we, we don't really look into kind of the nuances of being a shepherd. And back in this time, do you know how shepherds were perceived? Because do we even think about that? Not, not just their tasks, but how about one, some of the deeper underlying things? Because these guys weren't looked upon very favorably. In fact, they were kind of looked down upon. They were regarded as dishonest people. So it, it wasn't that every single shepherd's dishonest, but because of their job, because of their occupation, that's just how they were looked upon back then. That was their perception. So much so that their testimony wasn't even allowed in court. There was this rabbinic saying that goes something like this, robbers, shepherds, violent men, and anyone else under suspicion when it comes to handling money, we will not accept their testimony in court. That was a shepherd. Knowing that, this is kind of the foolishness and this is kind of the craziness of it all. Who were the first witnesses to the birth of Christ? Shepherds. Is that crazy? That's crazy to me. Right? Luke is, Luke is just reporting this stuff. He's not the one that created this story. So I can't blame him. Who can I? God. God. You are nuts. Why would you do that? Why would you start your story of, of Christ Jesus being born here with people that have no credibility at all saying that he, they saw it? Right? The first witness to this account are shepherds? Are you kidding me? Right? People, people whose testimony wouldn't hold up in court are the first witnesses to Jesus Christ? Who would even think that shepherds count? Why would you do that, God? Because in God's eyes, shepherds count. Shepherds count. The lowliest of the low. Even the lowly shepherds matter to God. The places where people think that they have no weight, God gives them value there. God gives them prestige there, saying, you do have a testimony here. And God doesn't care if shepherds are regarded as credible witnesses or not. He counts them. They are part of His redemptive plan. They are included in His redemptive plan. He is sure to include a lowly carpenter, a teenage girl that is pregnant without that marriage being consummated and whose reputation is shot because of that, and shepherds whose testimonies don't even count in court, but they testify to the birth of His Son. He brings them all up. He includes them all. Yet the birth of Jesus Christ... First witnessed by shepherds. 
And you would read that, and as a reader in that early time, you'd be like, that's nuts. Why would he do that? Right? You, you would think that in order to build credibility, you would say, okay, grab that high priest, grab the Sanhedrin, let's show him. He didn't do that. Shepherds, people who wouldn't even have a testimony in court, are the first to witness this. And it's just God, he's just full of surprises. He doesn't work the way that we think he would work. God, God continued back then. He continues now and will in the future to surprise religious leaders, religious people like ourselves who think a certain thing, but he, he's going to tweak it a little bit. We think that we have God all pegged and, and we know how he works and all this stuff, but, but he always shows us differently, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Thank God he does that. Thank God he does that. And you and I, we, we have hope because we have a God like this. A God that eats with sinners. That communes with sinners. That, that says, I'm going to use shepherds as my first witnesses. I'm going to use a carpenter to be my earthly dad. And then he chooses to count those who would not count, right? He, all these people here, he, he chooses them. When other people would discount them, he chooses them. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God practices what he preaches. It's not just empty words to him. He, he actually did all this stuff, right? The first witnesses to the birth of Jesus, our Savior, were shepherds. Verses 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now I want to bring our attention down to verse, uh, verse 11. Where we're told that a Savior was born. A Savior. And so you recall that Caesar Augustus, he was deemed a savior, that there was even an inscription about Caesar Augustus. And I'm going to read some inserts of these inscriptions that are found throughout the Roman Empire, and you can even do it now in, in, in archaeological sites. There are these different inscriptions in different places. And here are some of them. Sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants. The God, Augustus, was beginning of the good tidings for the world. Augustus Caesar, son of God. And so these inscriptions are in places all around the Roman Empire that you can even go and see now. But God sent this angel to tell us of a Savior, Jesus Christ, not Augustus. Something about this word Savior is, do you find that to be an offensive word? Savior? And for those of us who don't, it's probably because we acknowledge that we need one. Right? We, we, we come to the fact that we need one so that, you know, that, that, that isn't offensive to us. But for those of us who probably, if we don't have a relationship with Christ, if, if, if we are not a believer in what He has done to save us from our sin, and if you put that hat on, would that be offensive to you? Would that be offensive to you? To say that you're in need of a Savior is, is probably an offensive thing to say to someone if they don't believe that they need to be saved. Right? If they don't think they need to be saved, it's probably really offensive. It's, it's like giving someone 
deodorant when they stink. Right? Right? The, the deodorant ought to be a good thing. It ought to it, it helps you not stink. It's a solution to your stinky problem. And so, but but as you're giving something to someone that is good, deodorant, and it, and it's good, and you're giving to you're also doing something else. You're telling them something bad, aren't you? You're, you're telling them, thou stinketh. Right? So, so they have a problem. Right? And you're telling them that you need deodorant. And some people just won't appreciate that. Right? They, they would be offended by that, even if you're offering them something good. And that's, that's kind of what's behind this announcement that, that this Savior is born. Is good news, you stink. Right? It's, it's both bad and good. And good news that the Savior is here. Bad news, you actually need one. And, and some people don't like to think of themselves as, as needing a Savior. A Savior, even though we can be blind to, to those needs of ours. And sometimes we're completely oblivious to our needs. And, we're, and we need to be told of what those needs are. But, but then when we're told, we, we can get angry about it. We can get offended by it. We... We don't want to believe it, right? What if your spouse gave you a gym membership? What does that tell you? It's good news, right? Honey, I, I want you to be healthy and live longer, and, and I want us to be more physically attractive to each other so we can do things that Dave Kim mentioned about. And, and um, shame on you, Dave. But yes, in the context of marriage, go for it. So, but... But, also bad. Not all good news, right? It's, it's because she might be telling you, honey, there's just a little bit too much love in the love handles. You, gotta, you know? You gotta... It's the same time. At the same time that it's a good thing, thank you for that gym membership. <laughs> right? Or, oh, shit, or I, I, something's wrong with me that... I'm getting that. So, so it's, it's, it's that. when God gives us this really good news, there's this element of bad that comes with it as well. Because when He offers us a Savior, there's an assumption that we need to be saved. See, God didn't just send us a philosopher because our primary problem isn't a deficiency in logic. God didn't just send us an artist because our primary deficiency isn't creativity. God didn't just send us an educator because our primary problem is not a lack of knowledge. He didn't just send us an entertainer because our lack is boredom or, or, or that our problem is boredom. He didn't just send us an economist because our problem isn't primarily economic. The problem is not poverty. God didn't just send us a psychologist because the root of our problem is not maladjustment. God didn't just send us an administrator because our main problem is not disorganization. God didn't just send us a social advocate because our problem is not just the need for social justice. God didn't just send us a religious leader because the problem isn't being irreligious. God sent us all of those things. All of those things. And Jesus is the epitome of all of those things but He wrapped it up in a Savior. He wrapped it all up in one Savior. He sent us a Savior. The Savior because the problem is that we are lost. 
and that we are perishing without Him. He is the best at all those functions that I mentioned and more. But only He can be the Savior. And then Luke tells us that in the latter part of verse 11 that baby Jesus is Christ the Lord. What does that mean? What does Christ mean? What does the Lord mean? Christ meaning the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who was set apart, the One who was appointed Savior, who was authorized to do God's mission. Lord meaning Yahweh. The Lord, the God of Israel. God in the human flesh. Now isn't that weird? Isn't that bizarre? That God who created the heavens and the earth, who parted the Red Sea, would make Himself this little baby? This baby, like, can't even do anything. And, but so cute. And yet placed in this feeding trough. Right? And, and need, needs mom's milk. And needs to be burped. And needs to be changed. And stuff so helpless that Almighty God would put Himself in that place. So we have the Messiah, the King, from from this Davidic line as a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a feeding trough, so we're given His humanness. And we also have the Lord's good godness in, in that He is Lord, in that Jesus is Lord. And we have His royalty as Messiah, we have His deity as God, we have His humanness as a baby, his humanity. And it's all kind of weird and it's all kind of bizarre to think that God would work this way. And we can't always judge by appearance, can we? Right? We can't judge by appearance. And I, I, do, I do think that it's wise sometimes to judge by appearance. It's not to say like never judge by appearance. I, I do think that we need to exercise discernment. We need to exercise wisdom. Right, say like we're ministering in our community community center to some gangs, the one the same ones that keep tagging our building, those guys. And we're ministering to them and, and, and we're we're gonna bring them home. We're gonna bring them home, but we have to go through kind of a, a rival territory of, of a rival gang. And we can see that because the spray paint is all the tags are of this rival gang, and we see this rival gang there, and and we know that it is. The appearance is that that gang will kill this guy and it's accurate. What we should do is take an alternative route. Exercise that discernment. Exercise that wisdom. And don't think like, oh, appearances. Oh, we can't judge by appearance. Sometimes you do. But other times, there, there, there are times that judging by appearance is way off. Way off. Right? Like, like, in dealing with the homeless community that we serve, if you listen to their stories, you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised that they have families, that some of them are educated, that there are these different backgrounds to them that you would never guess because they have a different appearance. You would never guess their backgrounds and their stories and stuff like this. Just like the birth of our Savior, it's just kind of off. You would just never guess that the Savior of the world would be born in, in Hicktown, Bethlehem in a feeding trough to a dad who's a carpenter and a mom who's this teenage gal that would have a ruined reputation for the rest of her life. All this stuff, all these appearances, they're just all off. But that's how God works. God is unconventional. You can't, you can't expect Him to do some things that you would often expect. He just doesn't always do things like that. Our human expectations don't dictate how God does things. 
God does things the way He does them because He has these reasons behind why He does them. And part of those reasons is, I think, is this intrinsic character within God is in that He is fascinating. That God is just simply fascinating. And so the question is, are we fascinated by God? Are, are we fascinated by who He is? And this is really important because that fascination is a really close step away from worship. And the desire to worship God, that tells you some things about yourself in that if you're in a good place or not. Because if you're not fascinated and you're not worshiping Him, you're just not in a good place. But if you are, if you are fascinated by God, if it drives you to worship in God, you are probably in a better place. You're in a good place. Verses 12 through 14. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now did you catch that? What the angel said there in verse 14. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Caesar Augustus was known for peace. Right? There, were, there were these intermittent periods of peace with him as the Caesar. But what about the peace from Jesus? Are you hearing this? Who is this peace? Or, or it, can be, it can also be translated salvation, reconciliation. Who is that peace or salvation among? Those with whom God is pleased with. This peace, this salvation, this reconciliation with God is on God's terms, not our terms. Right? It's not an intermittent peace. This peace is everlasting peace. And there are some who want peace with God on their terms, as if they are God. And if you want an everlasting peace with God, this salvation with God, this reconciliation with God, it's on His terms. He dictates. You and I don't make them as we, we go along and as how we feel and what makes sense to us and what's logical to us. It is His sovereign gift to us. It's His gift to give, not our gift to take. In John chapter 6, verse 44, it reads, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, there's no other way. That's what he said. It's on God's terms. It's not our terms. It's not make it up as you go. It's God's doing. This was God's initiative. John chapter 1 verse 12 reads, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gives that right. right? It's not receiving whatever you want and, figuring, and deciding and figuring things out that, oh, it's this and that. It, it's receiving him, Jesus. God dictates. And before you, you chose to receive Him, God made Himself available to you. And so, so we see here that we have a really loving God. Verses 15-20, through 20, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's take a look at the different reactions from all who heard in verse 18 and Mary in verse 19. In verse 18, 
we read that all who heard it wondered. Now, we're not sure if they were wondering about what the shepherds told them because it's just so incredible and they believed it, or if it was just really incredible, but they were not credible, and so they were wondering. And so you remember that these guys were discredited because of their occupation. So, so the source had to be considered here. We're not sure. That being aside, and that being a debatable discussion, let's just look at a different response entirely by Mary in verse 19, because it's different from any of those other ones that we could kind of glean from verse 18. It says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now the subject there, Mary, is emphatic in the original language. And to be more accurately translated, it would read, But Mary kept on treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. That it was a continuous thing she was doing here. She kept on treasuring. And then there's this word pondering. Meaning to throw together, to put side by side. And she kept taking these things, the things the angel told her before, the things that the shepherds were telling her now, and she was putting things together. She was putting these things together. She was um, throwing them together. And I think Luke is showing us what a disciple ought to be. He's showing us a receptive, a perceptive, a seeking, thinking, intelligent disciple. And she is trying to put together what God is doing. She's putting them side by side. She's putting them together. And we have another form of this type of disciple, this receptive, perceptive, thinking, intelligent disciple in Mary, a different Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha. Luke chapter 10, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. Now these two models, these are really good models of discipleship. Thinking disciples who are taking in what God is telling them, reflecting on the things that happened around them, listening, and they are thinking things through, putting them together, looking at them side by side. And it's a shame that many Christians aren't like this. That we aren't reflective. We aren't receptive. We aren't thinking people who are pondering what God is telling us about His Son, Jesus, in our life. Right? And through this seeking and through this perception, trying to put things together and, and, and putting them side by side and, and putting them under the light of Jesus in order to apply this new insight that we're receiving into our own life. And it's unfortunate that the majority of Christians aren't known for treasuring all these things, for pondering them in our hearts. What are we known for? When people say your name, whatever it is, when you think of so-and-so, what do you think of? What are you known for? Because are, are you reading magazines and books more than you are reading the Bible? Are, do you know more about sports and the players and musicians and, and the music than you know about Jesus and His disciples? How often are we treasuring? How often are we pondering God? Because we have, we have the same 24 hours in a day. Right? It, it, we're all busy. We all have things that we're doing. But, but is it really a matter of time? Or is it a matter of appetite? Because you eat when you're hungry. What are you hungry for? Right? Are, are you hungry for the Word of God? Are you hungry for a relationship with God? Because when you don't eat, you start becoming susceptible to some things. Some pretty bad things malnourishment 
And if you go long enough, death. And many of us have these in-depth knowledge of some things in our life. And I'm not saying that they're bad, but they're, it's different in that you, you know your profession inside and out. You know your hobbies inside and out, recreational activities, uh, pop culture, uh, how to pass video games, whatever it may be, right? You have these different things that you know a lot about. But being in Mary's place as a receptive, perceptive, thinking disciple who is treasuring all these words, pondering them in her heart, isn't one of those things that you're known for. Yet you call yourself a disciple of Jesus. And I hope that in that day of judgment, we're not using things like time as an excuse. right? You don't, don't let those other things pull you away from being a reflective, perceptive, thinking disciple, just like Mary was. And we just waste a lot of time. Right? Like I, I, I hear people say, like, oh, I'm called to the ministry, or I feel God leading me to do these things. But then you ask them, what, what have you been doing with your time? And, and they do other things. They're, they're on the internet for hours, or, or they're, they, they're, they're watching television shows, or they're just doing other things, and, or they're working out all the time, or they're working all the time, or they're doing whatever all the time that it's not in the Word of God. And so that's just not the same thing. You, you hunger more for knowing about pop culture than you know about, know about the gospel. And, and it's not wrong to read news or the internet or to get I think all of that is actually really valuable. I think it's valuable to know about music, to know about art, to know about your job, all this stuff. The reason being is not because you then you're good at it. The reason being is cuz then you can contextualize what you're interested in into a gospel message. It's not just so that you get better at whatever you're doing. That's so empty. It's so you can contextualize the gospel for the environments that you're in. And so you can preach the gospel, that you can live out the gospel in the environment that you're in. So go for it. Be on the internet. Be reading things. Get into music. Play your video. Do all this stuff. Just don't go overboard in that you hunger for junk food more than you do for real stuff. Right? And it's not about balance even. It's not, it's not about balance because you don't, you don't, it's not to say that that's bad. It's not a balance of good and bad. It's priorities, right? You, what are your priorities? How are you living your life? Is the gospel the forefront of your mind or is it other things? Other things which can be actually good things, whether it's like social justice issues, a very good thing. I'm not putting it down. Community things, very good things. Loving your neighbor and all that stuff, I don't think it's contrary to the Bible. But sometimes we put that before even the gospel message. And we lead with that instead of the gospel message when it should be the other way around. We learn all this stuff because we want to do the gospel message. Not this way. Right? So, so it's, it, it's bizarre to me sometimes that people are pouring their life into these other other things and, and using an excuse that the, well, it's for the gospel, but the gospel is like so close to here that it's not out there. We need to reverse some things, I think. Like in, in your job, I, do people even know you're a Christian? Or at school, do they even know you're a Christian? And if they do, do they even know what you stand for? I don't know. And we waste so much time. 
And, and, and so are we, are we being good examples in our homes? And I'll speak to guys because I am one and husbands because I am one. Are we being good husbands to our wives? Are we taking care of the things at home before we look at other things? And I have to confess to you that I've been convicted about this in my own life. That I put people in, a, in, a, in an idolatrous place. That I desire to serve people. I am a people person. People are valuable to me. I love people. I love this church. I love this church. So much so that it could be even be deemed as a mistress to me. Because on Tuesday, my day started at 6.30 in the morning and I went till 11.30 at night. On Wednesday, my, dark, my day started at 7 in the morning and I went till 10.30 at night. That's ridiculous. And the only half hour I had was to take my girls to swim lessons between 4 and 4.30. That was with my family. That's ridiculous. I need to take care of things at home. So I'm not coming from a perspective like, oh, I got it all figured out and I'm telling you guys what to do. I'm confessing to you that I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. I, I put some idolatrous things in their place. And some people might deem it as, oh, like, that's so great. The ministry is the priority and all oh, a church and people. He loves people and that's all great. It's idolatry. Same thing as a video game or sports or whatever else that I don't have Jesus in that place. And it's idolatry. Jesus is the only king. Jesus is the only place that, that's his place. That's the only person that belongs there. Everything else I need to draw back on, fall back on, and figure out things to better do with my time. Right? And, 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 and single guys. A lot of you guys, I'm sorry I'm picking on the guys. A lot of you guys complain like, oh, I'm single. There's no girls today. There's no man. Eh. If there's a, a, a girl, and you are a guy, and she loves Jesus, ask her out. The worst that can happen is she says no. If she says no, next. What? What's so hard? i got to pray, and she's the one. And You're going to freak her out. You're already praying that she's the one? Are you kidding me? She's not the one. Just... just Go out with her and see what the Lord does there. And, and be a gentleman, be a guy. You know, you're not out there to mack all over and stuff like that. You're not playing the field. You're out there figuring out, praying with her, seeing if she's cool, and seeing where you guys are in line with, with the Bible and stuff. And if you guys both love the Lord and, and proceed. You don't have to figure out if she's the one. Craziness. Right? And so, so if, you, if you see a gal... Ask her out. If she says no, eh, move on. Don't be a freak about it. Right? Don't be a freak about it. Just, it's not a big deal. And if you're a gal and, and you're like, I definitely don't want to go with that guy, whatever, you can say no. You don't have to say yes to every single guy. You can politely say, no, no, thank you. Right? And it's okay. And guys don't get all heartbroken. Like, oh, I always get rejected all the time. Why was that? Man, no girls at this church, no men at this church, all this other stuff, which is probably true. I'm not saying that every single one of you is quality. I'm not. I, 
And, and I'm, I'm just being honest here. And I, I'm not meaning to degrade you or, or put you down. Because this, this, it's just something that my wife and I, we had this conversation several days ago. And she asked me, are, are there guys at the church that you would be okay with our daughters dating if, if they were their age? And I, and I had to say that there are very few. Very few. Don't come up and ask me if you're one of them. Because that... <laughs> But there are very few. I can't honestly say that if, if like so-and-so came up and said, hey, yeah, Isabella, he, he goes to Regen. I know he's solid. Go for it. Sienna, that's a man of God. Go for it. Genevieve, that guy loves the Lord. Go for it. And some of you, I just don't know you well enough to make that th- call yet. Some of you, I do know, and I know you're not ready. Right? And, and it's, it, it's just a process. And, and I love you guys. Right? I, I want to pour into your life. I, I want to get us to a point where if, if people said, like, oh, that guy's from Regen, he's solid. We, we know he's solid. And the same thing for the gals. She, she attends that church. We know she's solid. And, and, and to create this place, not, not so that we make arranged marriages and stuff like that. Although I see, like, um. Match.com for Regen or whatever. We can make some money off of this. No. Um, that's not the point, right? The point is that we, we are creating people that are real disciples of Jesus, treasuring these things, pondering upon these things, becoming disciples of Jesus, knowing more about this than we do our, our fantasy sports or our, our, our sports in general or cars or whatever else that guys like, oh, yeah, guys like... Come on. Come on. Let us treasure the Word of God. Let us ponder the Word of God and know these things. And be a disciple like Mary. Let's pray. God, thank You for loving the, the lowliest of us. The shepherds even. And God, I, I pray that You would help us to focus on Jesus. That whatever is in that place that Jesus is, that we would remove that idol. Even if it's something that we would look at so highly and so valued that it's still not in the place of Jesus. And Lord, give us this appetite to hunger and to thirst for You more deeply. In Jesus' name, Amen.